Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on George Street in Marlebone, W1. One street south of the first killing by the Blackout Ripper. Two streets east of the failed hit on the exiled Iraqi general. A few doors down from the deaf son's desperate mum. And a few doors up from Dot the Deadly. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Built in the 1930s, Furscroft is a posh, ten-story Edwardian mansion block. The kind you'd expect to see in an episode of Poirot. Where for 90 minutes, the infamous Belgian detective twists his little moustache and jiggles his little grey cells all the while dreaming of waffles, chocolate, tin-tin and moulet frites, as what else do Belgians do? Only to conclude that... Dun-dun-dun! The killer was the slutty bigamist. Again. And yet, Marleybone's own detectives almost failed to solve a simple case owing to an assumption. On the Boxing Day morning of 1948, 50-year-old Harry Michelson was found on his doorstep at flat 75. With a towel to his forehead, blood running down his face, and no memory of what had occurred. With no signs of forced entry, the police assumed they were hunting an assailant who Harry had let in. And although they had supposedly interrogated every detail given by every eyewitness who knew Harry well, it took a sharp-eyed constable with a suspicious nose to truly trap his killer. 
My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. And this is Murder Mile. Episode 233 Sketches. Eugene Fordsworth said, Assumption is the mother of all mistakes. It's a crime we've all committed. As sometimes, it's too easy to assume that the most logical answer must be the right answer. For us, it's a mistake we can make with very little consequences. But for detectives, it can derail an investigation. Harry Saul Michelson was born on the 14th of December, 1898. Being raised in a loving, well-educated middle-class family and spending most of his first five decades in and around Wilsdon and Paddington. Being five foot six and sparsely built, those who knew Harry described him as a cheery and pleasant gentleman who was always kind and as a talented cartoonist and an acclaimed commercial artist. He loved to while away his free time by sketching friends and strangers over a cup of tea and a chat. But painting was also how he made his living. Nicknamed One Minute Michelson, Harry toured the theatres of Great Britain as a lightning cartoonist who wowed the crowds with his speedy sketching as part of a musical act. As an immensely creative man who brought joy to the masses, especially as the bombs of the Luftwaffe pummeled every British city while the Second World War raged on, it made perfect sense that Harry would fall in love, possibly on the circuit, with a talented pianist called Anna. In November 1938, they married at Wilsdon Registry Office. And as performers with no children, it was said that they toured together. But with Harry having contracted malaria during the First World War, and still suffering from the long-term effects of fevers, chills, aches and pains, as well as stomach problems and nerves, described by his younger brother as highly strung. For the sake of his health, he gave up performing and continued working from home with a set of paints and an easel by his bed. In 1941, Harry and Anna moved into a small bed-sitting room flat at Firstcroft in Marleybone. As a basement flat, the view from its two casement windows wasn't much, as it overlooked the concrete wall below the corner of Brown Street and Nutford Place. But as a modern block with solid locks and being staffed by a team of porters day and night, what they paid for was the amenities and the security. For Harry, who spent most of his days alone in this tiny two-roomed flat, it had everything he needed. 
a kitchen come bathroom, with a toilet and a bath in the same room as the gas hob, which was perfectly normal for that era, and a bed sitting room, with two single beds, a phone, a gas fire, a wealth of artwork, a day bed for resting while he sketched, with an easel, paints, and heaped stacks of magazines and papers for reference, as well as a tubular metal chair where his guests could sit as they posed for his portraits. As a polite but solitary figure, he always greeted the porters. He often went for morning coffee at Maison Lyonnaise, and although a semi-regular guest at Sketch, an artist's members' club, not being much of a drinker, owing to gastric issues, he spent most of his time alone in his flat, painting. He wasn't well off, but he wasn't broke. He wasn't a bad man, just kind and quiet. And although his wife had recently recovered from an overdose of sleeping pills, owing to Harry having uncovered her affair with a car dealer called George Jenkins, although they'd contemplated getting a divorce, they resolved it amicably. Harry Michelson was just an ordinary chap. So who would want to kill him? And why? Friday the 24th of December 1948. Christmas Eve. Across the city, with rationing still partially in force, a festive hum of excitement and frivolity rippled across this brightly lit city as the people shopped for presents. That day, from his post office savings account, Harry withdrew three pounds, roughly 130 pounds today, to purchase a chicken and a piece of lamb, as well as two pounds in silver so he could tip the porters over the holidays. The Christmas day itself was bright, but with no snow, a cold wind whistled down George Street. Being a man whose body swung from fevers to chills, owing to a distant bout of malaria, even though it was barely above freezing, for the last seven years, he'd often left his thin bedroom window and his flat door ajar to help circulate the fresh air. But with a trusty team of porters always on duty, Harry felt safe. Rising at 8am. The little flat hadn't got a single Christmas decoration up. As being Jewish, they didn't celebrate the holiday, so it didn't bother them in the slightest that they would spend it apart. At 9am, hired to perform at a slew of hotels in the seaside town of Bournemouth until just after Boxing Day, Anna kissed Harry goodbye and headed off, not knowing that she would never see him again. For Harry, it was a simple day. Throughout the afternoon, he handed each of the porters several shillings as a thank you for their hard work, 
and said to one and all, Here's wishing you all the best. He asked the head porter if he could pop the chicken and the lamb in their freezer, ready for his wife's return. And at 6pm, 8pm and 10pm, he left via the main door. As having run out of bread, he had also forgotten that today was Christmas Day and that most of the bakers would be shut. At 10 p.m., he returned and was greeted by the night porters, Samuel Freeland and Frederick Newman, who said that, as usual, he was in a good mood and although breadless, he wished them both well. As was his nightly routine, Harry undressed, putting his brown striped suit on the chair, his shoes by the bed, a glass of water by the bedside phone. And having finished a good book, in the single bed nearest the door, he drifted off to sleep, snoring loudly as the fresh winter air ventilated this usually stuffy flat. For the two porters, it was a busy night as of the 300-plus tenants at Firstcroft, several Christmas parties ensured that a steady stream of guests entered and exited via both sets of main doors. Being routine, both were locked at midnight. Only the porters had the keys. Every guest or resident was only escorted in or out after that hour by the two night porters, and both doors were only unlocked at 7.30 a.m. Samuel and Frederick both confirmed that it was an uneventful night. Only for Harry, it was a night that, if he could, he would never forget. At 5.15 a.m., Night porter Samuel Freeland heard a voice he recognised calling from downstairs. As Harry shouted, Porter! 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 At the door of flat 75, dressed in just his pyjamas and a bathrobe, the ghostly white frame of Harry stood, holding a towel to his head as a stream of blood ran down his panicked face. Samuel asked, What happened? At which Harry bluntly replied, Never mind, call an ambulance. I'm bleeding like a pig. Only what Samuel and possibly Harry didn't realise was that Harry already had. With the ambulance on its way, as the porters led Harry to the reception, stumbling and trembling, it was clear that he was afraid. And although he cried, I am dying. I can feel it in my bones and the blood pumping in my brain. It was clear that he had no idea what had happened. The porters assumed he had an accident as nobody had heard a break-in, a scream or an assault. Arriving at St Mary's Hospital 
at 5.38 a.m. With a single wound to his right temple, which was no different to any other injury caused by a domestic slip or tumble. X-raying this one and a half inch laceration, a fracture to the skull was identified. A blood clot was removed. And although initially conscious, Harry repeated, I can't tell you what happened. I don't know. I've not been in a fight, nor been drinking. All I know is that I discovered a lump on my head which is bleeding, and I know I won't live. And although he didn't know much, he knew that. As drifting into a coma, the next day at 12.45pm, Harry died of his injuries, unable to tell the police anything about his accident. With the investigation headed up by Superintendent Beveridge, DDI Jameson and Inspector Grange, Harry's flat didn't seem like the scene of an assault. Far from it. It was messy, but there were no signs of a struggle. With all three windows locked from within, there was no sign of forced entry. And with the blood dotted in a steady line upon the carpets between the bedroom, the bathroom and the hallway, at some point, he'd grabbed a towel to stem the wound. He'd made a call for an ambulance and then he'd collapsed upon his bed. If it was an attack, it was motiveless, as nothing seemed to be missing. His checkbook was on the sideboard. He'd got 16 shillings in his suit pockets and several pieces of saleable artwork hadn't been touched. With no obvious weapon found, and only Harry's hair and blood identified. It didn't seem like a break-in by a stranger, so the police assumed that he'd let his assailant in. Several suspects were considered. Every guest at the Christmas parties in the block were questioned, and George Jenkinson, his wife's former lover, was quizzed. But all had cast-iron alibis. With a wealth of sketches featuring unknown people who had posed for Harry found in his bedroom. Although it was assumed that he may have sketched his killer before the attack, this was proven to be unlikely. And even though two of the porters had criminal records, with one of them for violence, all eight ruled out. The lack of evidence was driving the detectives towards a dangerous assumption that we believe he knew his killer. And although the theory that he'd been attacked by a walking thief has not been ruled out, it didn't seem logical that a stranger would break in, steal nothing, and then leave as if he wasn't there. On closer examination, Anna later found that Harry's black leather wallet was missing and hidden by a steady stream of blood on one of the legs of the metal tubular chair lay a finger and palm print 
which didn't belong to Harry, Anna, the police, or any of the porters. With the autopsy conducted by Dr. Donald Tear, identifying two crescent-shaped fractures to the right of his skull, one five and a half inches long and the other two and a half inches long, which were split into sharp shards which punctured his brain. It was confirmed that the tubular steel chair was the most likely cause of his wounds. This was no accident. But who had killed Harry? And why? The breakthrough in the investigation came down to an off-duty constable, unconnected to the case. On Tuesday the 18th of January 1949, PC Walsh spotted two men in dark clothes acting suspiciously in St John's Wood, outside of two affluent houses on Grove End and Hamilton Terrace. And as the two men dipped between the shadows, slipped down dark alleys, and furtively peeped in through unlit windows. Calling for backup, at 5.55pm, PZ Walsh arrested 26-year-old Thomas Collier and 21-year-old Harry Lewis. With the details of every local burglar being passed to the murder squad, taking their fingerprints, police found a perfect match to the murder of Harry Michelson, which were linked to Harry Lewis. Questioned at Paddington Police Station, Harry Lewis swiftly confessed, I didn't think I would get away with it. When I read about it in the newspapers, I knew he was the man I hit. But who was Harry Lewis? And why had he murdered Harry Michelson? Born 28 years before, and 170 miles northwest of Harry Michelson's birthplace, Harry Lewis was the illegitimate son of Annie Lewis, a single mother. Unable to support herself, being admitted to the poor law institution at Howarden in northeast Wales. Age three, Harry Lewis was abandoned, and for the rest of his childhood, he would be bounced from foster parents to orphanages and to penal institutions. From ages three to nine, he spent in the dark depressing gloom of the Cottage Homes Orphanage in Hollywell, where a lack of love left him feeling abandoned, lost and angry at the world. For one year, he was briefly boarded out to Mrs. Williams in Leeswood, and although she said he was likeable and well-behaved, growing sicker, he was sent back to the orphanage where he would spend nine years. Age 12, with the Second World War having erupted. Against his will, he was sent to the nautical training school in Portishead, where destitute and neglected boys were given hard military discipline. 
subjected to four years of compulsory discipline. His report described him as unsatisfactory. With numerous instances of dishonesty and theft, he is a boy greatly lacking in decent moral principles. Booted out of the Naval Training School and being bounced back into the public institution at Hollywell, his file lists him as troublesome, insolent, unmanageable and a confirmed thief. And lasting just a few weeks as a labourer at the steelworks in Shotton, Harry was seen as a poor workman and mentally weak. What followed was a series of committals to institutions and petty criminal acts. In December 1943, aged 16, he was placed on probation back at the Hollywell Public Institution, where he absconded. In January 1944, he was sentenced to 28 days for stealing cigarettes. The next month, he was committed to two years at the approved probation home for youths in Stonebridge Park. And although only aged 17, having enlisted as a private in the Middlesex Regiment to avoid any more time in Borstal, he was fined £7 in Chester for forgery, sentenced to two years at Marleybone for theft, and discharged for theft and assaulting a woman. That had been his entire life, up until the age of 20. On the 7th of December 1948, just 18 days before the murder, Harry Lewis was released from Wormwood Scrubs Prison. Described as a violent and undisciplined man whose record reveals no redeeming features, even though he was married and had a three-year-old child, he didn't have a job, he didn't have a home, his wife had rightfully fled from her violent and abusive husband, and he had nothing. Abandoned, just like he had been as a baby, he drifted across the city with no money, no hope, no life, and no future. By the Christmas day of 1948, Harry Lewis had never met Harry Michelson. He didn't know him. He was a stranger. It's a strange thought, but while the city celebrated Christmas, both Harrys were sat alone. With Harry Michelson in his basement flat in Marleybone, and Harry Lewis in a cheap B&B in Euston. And whereas one made his living by bringing joy to the masses with his sketches, the other knew nothing but theft. It was early on Sunday morning, Harry Lewis said. I'd no money and thought I'd break into a house and get some. It was between 2am and 3am, 
when passing the corner of Brown Street and Nutford Place, that Harry Lewis happened to stumble upon a thin casement window left open a crack. By a man whose dose of malaria, 30 years before, had left his body swinging from fevers to chills, even on a cold night like this. There was a big drop down into the basement, so I jumped the railings and dropped, far from the porter's view. Hidden in the dark, as the convicted burglar crept along the concrete slit, I opened the window and heard a man snoring. Breaking into a dark but occupied flat was riddled with risks, like injury, capture, arrest and even death. But being desperate, it was worth the risk, just as long as Harry Lewis was silent. I climbed in. It was dark. I was feeling my way around and I came to the bottom of a bed at the far end. That being Harry's bed. A man's trousers was lying on the metal chair. I took a wallet, some coins, and then I went into the hall. As a stranger, staggering about in this unfamiliar flat, he had no idea that the hall only led to the kitchen come bathroom, the corridors of Firstcroft, which were paroled by the night porters a set of main doors which had been locked many hours before, and that the only item of any real value which was worth stealing was the wallet. Harry didn't know that, but by then, his luck had run out. When I got into the hall, a chap sat up in bed and said, Who's there? Who's there? With the owner awake, the only way out was through him and the window from which he had entered. The chap was just getting out of bed. I was frightened of getting caught. So I picked up the metal chair. It was the first thing I could put my hands on and I thought I could knock him out with it, just a bash on the head. He fell, but started getting up again. So I swung the chair again and gave him another bash. I then dropped the chair and left the way I came in. Fleeing into the cold night and hopping into a taxi on Edgeware Road, the burglar of 75 Firstcroft got away with four one-pound notes and two ten-shilling notes. Barely enough to last him until the end of the week. It was a random attack by a total stranger for the sake of some quick cash. Harry Michelson was small and sick, so there was unlikely to be a struggle. And with the attack swift, very little steel, and no obvious points of entry or exit 
the detectives have made a lazy assumption based on the evidence they had. But it was wrong. And they wouldn't realize the truth until Harry Lewis made a full confession. Back in the flat, slumped on the bed, as blood poured down his head, the detectives wouldn't suspect that the thin casement window was how the burglar had got in. As in doing what anyone else would have done, being attacked in their own home. Harry Michelson had locked it and drew the curtain. It's tragic, but Harry could have survived his attack. Only being helpless and alone, with his wife many miles south, the porters above, and his neighbours asleep having heard nothing. Stumbling about his lonely flat, with no memory of what had happened, the sharp shards of his fractured skull dug deep into his brain, leaving him confused, bleeding and afraid. It's likely he'd spent at least two hours, maybe three, either collapsed on his bed or wandering about, unsure why his head was bleeding. But having momentarily gained a short sense of consciousness, he phoned for an ambulance at 5.12am and called the porter just three minutes after that. Porter! Porter! 33 hours later, Harry Michelson was dead. Tried at the Old Bailey on the 9th of March 1949, before Lord Chief Justice Goddard, Harry Lewis pleaded not guilty to the murder of Harry Michelson. He didn't deny the burglary or the attack, stating, I saw in the newspapers a photo of the window I'd got through, and I realised the man I'd hit was dead. I did not know the dead man. It was just a chance shot that I entered that place that night. And although I hit him hard, I didn't mean to kill him. I did it just to get away without being caught. That same day, although one of the jury had to be expelled as they objected to the death penalty, a jury of 10 men and women deliberated for 35 minutes and unanimously found him guilty of murder. Sympathising with his tragic upbringing, the jury recommended mercy for Harry Lewis. But with his appeal dismissed on the 21st of April, he was executed by hanging that very same day. Harry Michelson was buried in East Ham Jewish Cemetery and Harry Lewis was buried in Pentonville Prison. That said, the murder of Harry Michelson might never have been solved had the detectives not been so dogged as to assume he'd let his killer in. As Eugene Fordsworth said, assumption is the mother of all mistakes. 
and by making a simple assumption. They had made the mother of all mistakes. And although there was a small chance that as he lay in his hospital bed, that one minute Michelson could sketch his killer as the detectives hoped, by that point, that's all his memory was. Sketches. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Oh, there we go. Oh, it's a bit of a race to get that done. Bloody, oh, the... I was looking at the weather and thinking, oh, the, the weather said it was going to piss down at 11 o'clock and this is not quite 10, it's quarter to nine in the morning. And uh, I looked at it the weather report this morning and it said it's fine it's not going to rain there's just going to be a little little bit of drizzle a little bit of drizzle about 11 o'clock maybe two yeah pissing down at 9 30 absolutely pissing down thank you met office so uh yeah so i was racing to get that done at the end and then and then whenever the rain happens the great thing with with the rain is it stops the little the little the little annoying little aircraft that go by and it stops the annoying barky dogs that are, that are shouting at each other but it doesn't shut up coot and moorhen who go oh i need to shout because it's raining so anyway you take your little half there we go hat off uh oh welcome to extra mile unscripted this is the unscripted unedited bit which comes at the end we do a little chat i make a cup of coffee i used to make tea but now i'm kind of on a diet i'm trying to stay off milk and sugar and things like that um even though i still have sugar here i occasionally have one and sometimes i put in my powdered milk in there but it just it just it just goes clumpy now it's horrible shit I, i'm so used to black coffee now i may end up being the black coffee king king of black coffee and then when i go to costa later on i'll have my i'll have my 
decaf soya latte. There we go. Like a twat. Uh, so, yeah, we have a chat. Uh, we do some questions, uh, kind of quiz questions about the, the uh, this episode. And then uh, I'll fill you in on some details that wouldn't have made it into the episode. And don't forget, uh, if you enjoy Extra Mile, uh, if you become a patron sub- supporter and if you are the, uh, the tier that's Handsome Hamlet and above, you get Walk With Me. And that's after I've finished editing this, I do literally, I, I literally put the microphone on. And then I go walking somewhere, normally to the coffee shop or sometimes to put my bins out. Exciting stuff, that because my life is wonderful, isn't it? Uh, shit like that. And then I, I fill you in on all the details of the things that never made it into the episode and kind of theories that I have and things like that. So, And also little secrets about things that I've added into the episode that no one else will know. So you can do that via being a patron supporter. Also, you get loads of extra goodies as well. Let me go and put my... Uh, my kettle on oh ow oh there we go open the window let some air in yeah bit drizzly bit drizzly but there we go i'm gonna open up uh i'm gonna open the window behind me as well probably no one will come past now which is fine because it's yeah it's not raining but it's drizzly so people will go oh i don't want to go out uh so what's going on still on my diet which is good, still sticking to that. Only I'm at that point now where I think everything's going in reverse. I think my body is just used to crap, uh, uh, good food and no crap, and therefore, like I do, my like I do like twenty thousand, twenty five thousand steps a day, and uh, my exercise in the morning, and I eat well, and you know things like that. And I don't have a, I don't have crap in my diet. Or I have a little bit of crap every so often just to help out. But I think I'm going in reverse. I think my body's going, yeah, you can have a carrot, but then I'll make you put on weight for having a carrot, bastard. So there it is. Um, uh, I was hoping to get through this episode. There's lots of a year's supply of tissues next to me because I think I'm getting a cold. I think it's the start of that season where I'm getting a cold. So I was racing forward to try and... I was like, oh, no, I'm getting a cold. Worst thing you want to do is do an episode when you get a cold. Uh, but I think I did a while I got through it um, and this is one of my first days of having both eyes working this is great this is great news so after uh, for those who don't know I had bronch- six weeks of bronchitis I ruptured um, six weeks of bronchitis when that got over I got a week of conjunctivitis and not realizing that my eye was ruptured the conjunctivitis went into the eye and then it started getting really bad and it was bulging out of the eye because of all the pressure it was really horrible and uh yeah uh my i almost went blind in that eye my vision went went close to blind uh which was horrible because i don't have great vision anyway um but luckily i'm i'm a patient at uh, a well-known uh, eye hospital and they've been amazing they've been really good so i've been in and out practically every week to two weeks for the last couple of months on some really serious heavy drugs in my eyes and checking it out and the other day they were in there they were like great it, it's uh uh the scar has healed uh you can barely tell there's a wound anymore we don't need to do an operation that all looks good um let's put your lens back in and see if there's any change and there hasn't been a change in my eye it seems all right it hasn't got they said it could get better it could get worse it's most likely to get worse but nothing has happened so i think i got really lucky with this one so uh, i've both lenses in today which is great so i can now it's weird being able to see everything again because I've had no depth perception for a long time. So, and um, 
not able to see things with both eyes like just using one eye so now it's really weird now it's got, i'm having to refine rework out how to pick things up because when you've only got one eye you kind of learn a new way of depth perception you learn to kind of scoot around things and then pick things up but now because i can see now i'm having to work out how to pick things up again it's really weird anyway that's how exciting my life is uh thank you to two new patron supporters uh celia miller and amanda miller not related i don't think because they live in different countries i'm not going to say which countries because that's your private thing but thank you celia and thank you amanda for becoming patron supporters uh your goodies are in the post uh, celia i know you've already got yours because you just messaged me to say you got them um hang on. oh jimmy kettle there we go uh normally i say i'm making a cup and i probably won't uh I probably won't drink it because normally at this point I go off to the coffee shop or as my grandma used to say coffee shop uh, normally I go to the coffee shop but uh, oh but um it's a pissy down day it's still early I've still got how much power have I got in my battery 70% so I've got it says seven hours we know that's not seven hours we know it's going to be we know it's going to be uh that'll take me through to about one o'clock i think and then i think i'll go up to, go up to the coffee shop and do some more editing there so i think i'm gonna drink that coffee have uh my big fat carrot that's my treat during the day is eating a, eating carrots during the day oh my life is exciting uh and then occasionally in the evening uh, i might treat myself to a rice cracker Michael, your life is just wow. Whoa. Can life get any better? Oh, thank you to Prince Constable Arsenal Guinness to the Metropolitan Plotter. It was lovely to catch up with Prince Constable Arsenal Guinness the other night. And uh we, we went out, we had uh, we started with the Guinness. Yes. He's doing very well. It was lovely to see him. I haven't seen him since uh God, I think it was February. Yeah, it was. It was it was around the time of my birthday. Uh we had a good chat about New Blue. So we're gonna book in some time to do some new blue. So they'll be coming out soon. Uh but it's lovely to see him again. Uh we got very pissed. Uh, we found some very nice beers. Uh, we got very drunk. Uh and then I I, sh- I filmed a little video while drunk on the street, which I posted on my social media, which I shouldn't have done, but I thought bollocks, I was drunk. I don't care. Uh, that, uh, I just wanted to uh, work out what it was like to be Eva. Obviously, she's not that drunk. She's she's kind of twenty times worse than that. But I, you know, I want to experience her life. Um, so uh, let's do some quiz questions. Uh, it's really pissing down now. Th- that's it. You may not think it's a bad thing, like it, it raining, but because because this is a steel boat that I'm in, like when it rains like really when it hits the roof it really echoes and it reverberates around the whole boat so sometimes it could be absolutely deafening if the rail is really hard so uh yeah i need to be really careful let's do some quiz questions um i'll focus these quiz questions mostly on harry michelson and then we'll dive into some extra stuff mostly about harry lewis because we kind of jump through him not literally so uh question number one in what decade was Firstcroft, which is where uh, Harry Michelson's flat was, in what decade was Firstcroft built? Question number two, what did Anna, his wife, do as a job? Question number three, the window in Harry's bedroom overlooked which two roads? Question number four, where did Harry go for his morning coffee? Question number five, what club was Harry a member of? 
Question number six. What food did Harry buy for his wife's return? Question number seven. In what town was Anna performing in? Question number eight. What had Harry ran out of that day? Not ran out of as in ran out of. Like what, what object items did he run out of? Uh, question number nine. What was the name of the burglar? Hang on. What was the name of the burglar? Oh, yes. Sorry. I thought I'd literally written a, sh- a question that you could have answered easily. Uh, question number nine. What was the name of the burglar who Harry Lewis was arrested with? And question number 10. Where in London was Harry Lewis arrested? Right. So let's make sure. Don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet, so I might balls up some of these questions. If they do, don't worry about it. You can get uh, that, you can get that for free. You can have a free answer. Um, so let's dive into Harry Lewis. Uh, he was living at that point at Six Melton Street in Euston, uh, front bedroom on the third floor. It was a, it was a B and B. So he'd literally just come out of Wormwood Scrubs Prison, uh, which is over in West London, and uh, now he was in Euston uh, in a B and B. Trying to find somewhere to live. Um, he was born 6th of July 1927 in in and around Chester, but we don't know exactly where. Uh, his mum, uh, Annie Lewis, uh, originally uh, she lived in Parsons Green in London in 1926. So just before uh, she was. It looked like she was a chambermaid or someone who was in service of a lady called Mrs. Burkett uh, in Sydenham. Um, it seems like she got pregnant around that time. Uh, 8th of July 1930, uh, she was admitted uh, to the Poor Law Institution in Howarden in Flintshire. That's, that's North East Wales. So you're kind of on the border of Cheshire uh, and Liverpool. So you're kind of that area up there. Um it's kind of quite sad because in all the records here, Harry Lewis, even though he's only three years old, he's classified as an inmate because this is a poor law institution and because she's deemed as kind of, um, do you know, she's a single mum, she's got a child. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's classified as a really, really bad thing for her to do. How dare she you know, uh, have sex, even though it might not have been her choice. And then she ends up pregnant and dumped and alone. So, um, she, he was basically, they were both basically a, an inmate of poverty. So ended up at cottage house, um, which is still there today. It's, uh, I believe it's called Lucy hospital in Hollywell in Flintshire. So that used to be the cottage home orphanage, uh, 13th of October, 1930, his mother was discharged at her own request, uh, but being unable to look after him, she gave him up at that point, and his mother's whereabouts are not known. Uh, we don't know anything about her after that point. I've done a search, can't find anything about her. She basically just disappeared. Uh, 17th of October 1930, he was transferred from there to the cottage's home in Hollywell. Same same building, but uh, adopted by the Public Assistance Committee under Section 52 of the Poor Law Act 1930 and kept in the orphanage until 1936 so that's six years in an orphanage at all you know not probably not a great place to be not really a good sense of love also age three he's just at that age where obviously he'll remember his mum but he'll be asking the questions where is she why why is she gone he's he's of an age where he kind of he can process things like that uh 21st of february 1936 he was boarded out to a mrs williams on albert street in leeswood flincher um 
He was nine years old. He attended the Leeswood County School uh, while he was with her. She said he was healthy, likeable and well-behaved. Uh, but he had to be returned to uh, Cottage Homes Orphanage when he became ill. Um, so for one year, when he was nine years old, he had a sense of normality. Um, Resent back to Cottage Homes. They really didn't define what his sickness was at that point. We, we just don't know. Nothing is written there. Uh, so in total... After two more years there, he'd spent a total of nine years in the orphanage. Uh, 3rd of February 1939, so war's just broken out. He's 12 years old. He's placed in the nautical training school in Portishead in Somerset, and there for a total of four years. Uh, so the National uh, the National Nautical School in Portishead um, was a school built in 1869 for destitute and neglecting young boys initially of bristol but it cut the kind of welcomed other people in uh, originally it was based on a former military ship called the hms formidable which was moored just offshore um it was like that for about 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 40 45 years um and what they did was that they as, as we've seen in the if you go back to the episodes like silly little boys um you'll see that we're in an era there where what they believe in no no you, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be kind to these these young ruffians what you should do is you should treat them you should shout at them you should bark them you should instill um uh, you should be um you should instill kind of, oh i'm just turning my light off you shouldn't instill with them that you need to turn your light off um but you should their kind of thing is you instill into them discipline by shouting at them and as we know that doesn't work if you come from an institution where you haven't had any love going to another place where you get zero love and all you get is barked at it doesn't work it doesn't work but that that was the attitude back then is, is that's what you needs to do with her you know for some people it does work you know routine and things like that but for other people it just doesn't work at all um so there he uh, pupils were taught seamanship and other relevant skills such as shoemaking tailoring and carpentry uh, the school had also uh, a military band um and over over 50 years three and a half thousand boys were discharged from there uh from the school many went into the royal navy although a larger proportion actually the majority of them ended up in the in the merchant navy which is kind of the commercial side of uh they, they do a, a lot of the shipping so when when war was going on they they would do like moving supplies around and things like that um while he was there, uh, described as most unsatisfactory, and there were numerous instances of dishonesty and theft, and he can, and he has continued disobedience to the school rules. He was a boy who seemed to be greatly lacking in any decent moral principles. Um, again, while he was there, he's only sixteen years old. August nineteen forty-three, he returned to the public institution at Hollywell in Flintshire, having been withdrawn uh, by the authority. And later, under supervision with the institution, he was found to be troublesome, insolent, unmanageable, and a confirmed thief. Um, he did manage to get a little bit of work as a labourer at John Sumner's and Sons Steelworks in Shotton and Flintshire. Uh, but Mr. Grigson Rogers, who was the shift manager, said he was a poor workman and mentally weak. Um, so he's getting to that point now where he's 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 out of the orphanages he's aged out he's he's 16 and beyond so he's aged out he's kind of um 
done a little bit of military service but he's not really doing too well there and now he's kind of building up a bit of a criminal record because he's got nowhere to go he's got nothing to do he's bored he's angry at the world uh, 18th of december 1943 age 16 at northrop police court he uh, got probation for two years for larceny and um, and was brought back to the Hollywell Public Institution, which was where he was born, where he was raised. Uh, he absconded from there and went to Liverpool. Fifth uh, of January, nineteen forty-four. Again, age sixteen, he was brought back, uh, charged with stealing c- cigarettes from a dwelling house. And whilst on remand in Liverpool for twenty-eight days, he was sent. Um, he was submitted for an assessment at Liverpool Psychiatric Clinic. Now, I didn't put this in the episode because we'd already kind of covered what people thought of him, but it says, while on remand at Liverpool, Dr Muriel Hall, the psychiatrist at Liverpool Clinic, said, the boy was of average intelligence, but extremely weak in character development. He knows the difference between right and wrong, but has very little sense of responsibility with regard to the property of others. Age 17, he has failed to benefit from nearly four years of discipline and training. He is normally intelligent and pleasant in nature. So uh, after that, age 17, February 1944, he was bound over uh, and fined £5, which is, I always find it ironic when they, you know, someone's got no money and they're breaking into places, but they are fined an amount of money. And you just go, well, where are they going to get the money from, you dickhead? It's just it just that kind of thing. I know I know it's box ticking in the terms of law, and you've got to go. Well, we've got to do it because that is the law. But it's like if someone can't afford it, why why force them to pay? So five pounds is uh, that's about two hundred quid. That's that's a, quite a lot of money, especially for a young lad who's seventeen years old and doesn't have a home and doesn't have a doesn't have a, 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 a income. Um, he was on so he's put on probation there. But on the condition that he resided at the approved probation house for youths at Stanley House in Stonebridge Park, which is uh, northwest London. Um, and there he was employed as a cleaner. So he's gone from Flintshire and then they moved him down to London. Doesn't make any sense at all. 7th of February 1945, again age 17, he enlisted as a private in the Middlesex Regiment. Um, but just a couple of months later... He was fined £7 for obtaining £3 off the Postmaster General for forgery. That doesn't mean he robbed the Postmaster General himself. That just means against against the postal system. Uh, 13th of November 1945, age 18, at Marleybone. So he's down here. Sentenced to two years and two months for stealing cash and receiving uh, coupons uh, for clothing books. He was discharged from prison and returned to the army, but on the 12th of June 1946, a field court-martial was convened and he was sentenced to 20, 120 days for larceny. Um, almost immediately upon release from that, a second field court-martial was convened and he was sentenced to 12 months in prison for assaulting, occasioning GBH. Uh, there's few details about that, but apparently he assaulted a woman. We don't know anything more about that. I did search. Um, being discharged from the army he was then transferred to HMP Wormwood Scrubs Prison uh, which we've covered before uh, to complete his sentence they said his character was very bad a violent and undisciplined man whose record reveals no redeeming features Um, and he had a definite grudge against society he did briefly do a little bit of work uh, as a machinist at George Kemp and Co biscuit manufacturers on the North Circular Road but uh, he was only there barely a week. 
again, another another charge just after that uh, in Chester City. So he's moving around a lot, and uh, which was for larceny of cash and attempted forgery. Um, he married. 27th of March 1946 to a lady called Kathleen Mary uh, she lived in Chester so that seems to be the reason why he's going back and forth from London to Chester a lot so he can see his wife um, he had not provided a home for her or the the family they'd also got a young daughter and the only money she received was from his army allowance which ended when he was discharged uh, she last saw him in August 1948 so about four or five months before the murder and isn't interested in fixing the man marriage apparently he was quite a, a nasty violent man um prior to the murder so um we know uh, mrs dixon the landlady at six melton street uh said that day so christmas morning uh he left at two seventeen p.m he was wearing a brown suit and returned at 7 a.m the next day uh, which is boxing day so uh couple of hours after the murder um when asked where he had been he said to an irish dance but revealed nothing of uh nothing else that was relevant uh police did actually when he was arrested police did actually go to his room uh but there was nothing in the nothing of relevance in there um by this point he would have moved on and it would have been lent out to someone else anyway um the missing hours uh kind of quite sad that you've got uh, harry michelson that he's been bashed over the head and uh we we don't know when it happened it, harry lewis uh the burglar said it was sometime between two and three but he doesn't have an exact time because no one heard a scream or anything like that, like that we can't pin it down um so it's it's roughly between two and three but we know that around that time he was wandering around he'd been hit over the head so he's obviously concussed. He's wandering around the flat in a semi-conscious state. We know where he'd been because there were kind of irregular splashes of blood between the bathroom and the bedroom and the hallway. Um, he did. He doesn't seem to have gone out of the flat. Um, it's. It, it doesn't seem to have coagulated. One of the porters, I think it was Samuel Freeland, said um, there wasn't any kind of matting in the hair or kind of uh, there was no clumps of blood it was just constantly free-flowing and even when he saw him at five fifteen, so that's so even at the earliest that's two hours that his head had been bleeding it's still free-flowing so he's obviously uh because he's fractured his uh because his skull has been fractured and the 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 the, the sharp edges of the bones are kind of embedding into his skull that obviously he's got a real brain hemorrhage going on there and he's bleeding quite a lot so we so we can see where he's been uh we know that he collapsed on his bed for a while we don't know how long we know we went to his bathroom and picked up a towel to kind of stem the flow but we don't know anything about that point uh, charles hall of the paddington telephone exchange stated that at 5 a.m uh, on boxing day he took a call um asked what the number was and the man replied it was paddington 2838 which was the phone in harry's flat uh, next to his bed um so we're we, assuming that harry made the call uh, it's it's more than likely it is uh, because uh, they were able to track the taxi driver and the taxi driver had said that um harry lewis was picked up on edgeware road and he took him to 
Uh, he took him to the Lions Cornhouse Tea Room on Coventry Street, just off Piccadilly Circus. Um, when Harry was in the car, he opened up the wallet. He pulled out the four one-pound notes, and I think it was a two-shilling, two ten-shilling notes, uh, and he stuffed the wallet down the side of the taxi. So it was eventually found, but that wasn't until a lot later. Um, so the ambulance driver... Uh, so this is in the era where, obviously, you've got to call the telephone exchange and then the telephone exchange will connect you to uh, who you need to get in touch with. Uh, so that was connected to the ambulance service at 5.06am. Uh, the man said, send an ambulance to flat 75 George Street. I'm hemorrhaging badly. Um the ambulance service said that they received Samuel Freeland, who was the night porter, received his call at 5.12 a.m. So that was just six minutes later. So it, it does appear that uh, Harry Michelson probably hit over the head, probably wandered around a bit, probably collapsed onto his bed, was probably there for about two hours, maybe a bit longer. We gained consciousness about 5 a.m. and that's when he made the call. Uh, what else do we need? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. Um, I think that's most of it. I think that's most of it. Harry was, uh, Harry Michelson was, uh, uh, quite terrified. I think people, it's clear that people said, they said he was unusually loud and shouting quite a lot, which was really unlike him because he's quite a, quite a quiet man. Um, he had a towel to his head, blood running down his face, and was dressed in his pyjamas and dressing gown. Uh, Samuel Freeland said, what happened? Harry said, never mind. Uh, get me help at once. Phone Middlesex Hospital. I'm bleeding like a pig. Uh, where was the other bit? Yeah, they said he was hysterically shouting, which is unusual for him because he's normally quite calm. Um, there was another quote that I wanted to get. Um when they got him in the main hallway in reception waiting for the ambulance to turn up uh harry said i know i'm going to die my poor wife i shall die before i see her will you get in touch with her freeland asked uh how he got his injuries and harry said i can't tell you i don't know i'm a dying man i know i'm going to die look i'm covered in blood um it was actually the ambulance man who was there, even though the porters did just not their job to kind of uh, medically assess people and they're not trained. But And um, even though the ambulance men at that point were really just ambulance drivers with a little bit of kind of medical training, but not not like proper paramedics like we have now. These are just people who kind of assess you quickly and then get you to the hospital as quick as possible. Uh, uh, the driver, uh, William Holly, arrived at 5.23 a.m., saw two porters in the hall uh, and that harry was losing a lot of blood to the right temple and he quickly dressed the room uh, dressed the wound and drove him to st mary's hospital in paddington arriving at five thirty-eight a.m um it was actually the ambulance driver who looked at him and made the decision to alert the police alert the police that he thought there'd been an assault um and, and he obviously he was right at that point so the, so the police didn't know anything about it at that point and may not have known anything about it because it could if it had been reported that it could have been just an accident it could have been brushed off as an accident so that that could have been another assumption there you go you're welcome uh i think that's it i think that's it the, the police um the doctors were able to communicate with harry a little bit but not much while he was in hospital he kept drifting in and out of consciousness and kept repeating it a lot that what the police wanted to do was because he was a sketch artist they were hoping he would be conscious enough that they could 
like Inspector Grange would go in with a notepad and like hoped that they could put it in front of him and say sketch the guy who kind of who who attacked you but obviously he couldn't remember that his short-term memory was entirely gone he could remember the fact that his wife was in Bournemouth he could remember what day it was things like that he just couldn't remember what had happened um so I think that's it I think that's all I really wanted to add about that pretty much everything else is in in the episode uh, autopsy by Dr. Donald Tear. There was a crescent wound five and a half inches long from the right ear to the right eyebrow. Another crescent-shaped wound two and a half inches long, branching off from the initial wound. Um, initially, it was hard to tell <coughs> what wound he got to his head because when he was in hospital, because they found uh, a bleed and impacted wounds, he was operated upon. So therefore, his scalp was shaved and a drainage tube was added. Uh, but they also found a one and a half inch long, uh, quarter inch wide, wo- wide wound over the right shoulder blade. So that would have come also from the tubular chair. Uh, and his second and third ribs were broken from the spine with the second rib piercing the back, uh, the lining of the back. Uh, again, this would be from the chair as well. Um, the cause of death was due to depressed fractures of the skull. Uh, he was identified by uh, David Michelson, who was his uh, younger brother, who was mentioned earlier in the episode. So, so another another story of someone being attacked in their bed. Oh, great. Oh, great. Happy days. Sleep well, everyone. Sleep well. Um, so let's do some quiz questions. Uh, I hope I haven't ballsed up. Mm, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I don't think I ballsed up any. Okay. Uh, question number one in what decade was first croft built it's the 1930s question number two what did anna his wife do as a job oh she was a pianist oh. question number three the window in harry's bedroom overlooked which two roads it was brown street and nutford place question number four where did harry go for his morning coffee it was Maison Lyonnaise, which is at the uh, Cumberland Hotel just off uh, Marble Arch. And that is where the Black Eye Ripper met his first victim, possibly. Uh, question number five. What club was Harry a member of? It was the Sketch Club. Question number six. What food did Harry buy for his wife's return? It was a chicken and a piece of lamb. Question number seven. What town was Anna performing in? It was Bournemouth. Bournemouth. Question number eight. What had Harry ran out of that day? It was bread. Question number nine. What was the name of the burglar that Harry Lewis was arrested with? It was Thomas Collier. And question number ten. Where in London was Harry Lewis arrested? It was St John's Wood. So there you go, folks. There you go. Oh, I need a wee wee now. Really need a wee wee. Uh, you needed to know that, didn't you? So uh, that's that's uh, it done, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, we've got uh, two more single parters to go, then a three parter to take us into Christmas, and then uh, if I can get time to uh, meet up with Hustle Hennis and the Metropolitan Blood, um, we will do some. <coughs> we'll do some new blues probably for the new year uh and i might do some stuff over christmas i haven't decided yet uh so thank you for supporting the show everyone hope you're all well stay safe be good and uh uh that's it i think that's it 
yeah, that's me done. Cool. Lovely. I'm going to finish my coffee and have a pee-pee. Have yourself a good week, folks. Stay safe. Lots of love. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.